Nations, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Nutrients, coming to you live from the heart of Manhattan and Rockefeller Center at Newsstand Studios, joined as usual with Nastasia uh, the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Doing well? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we have also uh, work in the panels. Joe Hazen, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Uh, good, good. Uh, we're supposed to have Jackie Molecules in the California booth, but we're worried maybe the big one hit because we can't raise them. So this is not going out live to the Patreon people. I'm sorry. But uh, if somehow uh, you're uh, on the Discord, you want to call in questions to our guest at 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. And, of course, our special guest today is a fan of our, I mean, um, uh, fan favorite for, from our listeners. Fan of the show. Fan, oh, nice, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Kenji Lopez-Alt, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Um, I think I said I'm good. Good, I'm good. good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... All right, so, you know, you might know uh, the Food Lab, right, which sold, I don't know what, like a, a copy for every person who lives in the United States or something like that? <laughs> something like this. Something like like there's enough copies for, like, every, you know, person uh, to have one in the country, uh, which is great. To have 50 pages of one. Yeah. Part yeah. of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like how you've calculated it. That's very good. Uh, but you've come out with a new book, and I'm kind of surprised. It, it, you know, I was surprised when I learned. I mean, it was a long time ago that I learned what mm-hmm. you're doing. But uh, on uh, The Walk, just on The Walk, and you mm-hmm. say in the intro, uh, you're like, you felt kind of weird because it's the pan that you use the most. Right. And that you kind of left it out of your first book. Yeah. I mean, not not totally by choice. You know, my first book, I mean, you worked with Maria, but um, oh, yeah. uh, the, my first book, when I turned in the manuscript to her, she kind of, you know, t- took took the axe to it because it was way too long. Um, and so, all, all you know, most of the stuff that stayed in was kind of the American stuff and American adjacent stuff. And then, so there was a whole chapter on the walk in that book, um, among other things that got cut. Um, the only thing that remained in that first book is in the, is in the chapter, is in the introductory chapter on... Uh, equipment where I said you should buy a walk and these are the things you can do in a walk and then I didn't mention a walk again in the rest of the book. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I remember in, uh, you remember like, uh, so across the way from Maria uh-huh. was, you know, whoever her assistant was at the time. Right. Right. right yeah. Right. I mean, she, you know, in the time that we were writing, she had, <clears> I think like two or three, I don't know which one you had for the, like the longest length of time. I don't remember. Yeah. But um, in that side, in the side uh, cabinet, was your stacks of paper <laughs> because you submitted like eight billion pages <laughs> of stuff for the first book. I mean, every time, and Maria would, every time I showed up, she would waltz me across the room and be like, look at Kenji's stack. <laughs> Where's your stack Where's of paper? Where's your stack of paper? I'm like, I don't have one, Maria. I don't have it. So yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> good times. But uh, one thing I think it's interesting and... Um, I think going to be interesting for like a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. if they don't already have the book. When did it come out, by the way? Uh, March eighth, officially. March 8th. Yeah. So, uh, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you were a very early advocate and continue to be of the flat bottom walk. Yeah. And yes. and I think like this is going to be interesting for a lot of our listeners and might solve maybe some of their problems mm-hmm. in that uh, a lot of people poo-poo the flat bottom walk right. as being, you know, a you know, scare or air quotes, depending on... I actually asked my wife in yesterday, I was like, or... what's the difference between a scare quote and an air quote? She's like, it's scare quote when you write it, but it's air quote when you make it in the air. I was like, but do they have the same <laughs> meaning? And she's like, well, they don't have to have the same meaning. Anyway, uh, yeah, so it's in, quote-unquote inauthentic, as right. though authenticity really has meaning anymore. But, uh, you know, like, what does really authentic mean? But the, but the point is, is that uh, you say it just 
flat out cooks better does what on the kind of burners that we use unless you right. have an actual wok burner exactly yeah which it, it cooks don't. better it's also it also cooks safer right it's like you know there's a big chapter on deep frying in here because i think you know a wok i think is the best vessel for deep frying because it home. expands for well for a number of reasons yeah but um yeah because it expands so the bubbles don't go over and out it catches you're able to get under there more easily you can maneuver food more easily a number of reasons why i think it's the best tool for deep frying but a flat uh, round bottom wok. I don't want to fill that up with like two quarts of hot oil and have it kind of teetering on mm-hmm. a Western style burner design for a flat thing. So you know, part of it, part of it is performance because you're getting more of the pan closer to the closer to the fire and the and you know and the ring on a Western burner is designed to spread heat outwards. So right. when you're when the sides of the wok are elevated up, the, the flame spreads out even more. So you end yeah. up kind of heating up the sides of the wok instead of the bottom, which is what you want. Right, when you have like, a round yeah. bottom wok. Yeah, because I have an extreme, and I was surprised because there's also different. There's different levels of flatness, right? There's those yeah. ones where it's just a little bit flat. Right. But that's not what you're talking about. You're like almost have like a like full maybe like seven a, inches. Yeah, like a six or seven inch thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. almost like a real, it's almost like a, like a two-quart saucepan's bottom or something like that. But this. with much wider sides. Much wider sides. But in terms, yeah. in ter- the flat in terms part, of the flat part. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. So it feels safe on like a, a regular spider because I have to say... I actually kind of agree with you on this. I have extraordinarily high output burners, right? right uh, what's, at my what's house. That for, what's that for? At oh, just because that's the way I live. Yeah. What, what, what's the number? I mean, oh, we're it's gonna, hard we're to technically measure because um, the person who installed the stove didn't put a regulator on it. Okay. Okay. And so our gas comes in at slightly higher pressures. And I'm not saying that I have a commercial stove because right. that would be illegal for me to tell you that I have a commercial stove. Right. <laughs> but commercial stoves require regulators. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, their output's not regulated, right. you know. And so they don't explode. So, yeah, and so um, it's real high. It's, okay. it's above, it's, it's, it's around, they're, they're over 35, they're like okay. 40, you know, like it's and high. And for context, like in most homes, the, the, like my, I have like a kind of semi-fancy regular home range, and I think the highest burner on that is like 18,000. Yeah, so this is so ridiculous. Double that. Yeah, yeah. So um, the problem with it is, as you say, that, uh, and in fact, I easily overdrive even like an, an eight an eight inch uh, skillet. Mm-hmm. I'll overdrive it, and you'll, the flames will come out right, right, up right. the side. You know what I mean? If, if you go ape crap on it, yeah. right? But it's true that the, that even with all of that output, I still have. And this is the problem I think you're going to have with the round walk. And you, I want you to talk about it because you you talk about it in the book quite right. a bit. Is that I get water problems in the bottom of my round bottom walk right. because it, it, you know I have enough power that I can use a ring right, right? but it hits it hits it, it does like a fryer tuck you right, know what I mean right, I, right, I get right. like a yeah, fryer tuck exactly. situation yeah. in, in my walk and it's a problem uh, yeah I mean for yeah for some certain dishes it's definitely a problem you know actually on the cover of this book the the illustration the illustration here um, you know I, I did a sketch of this and then the artist went at it and the, the initial illustration all these flames are pointing outwards and that was the only comment I was like make the fl- like, make the flames point towards the middle of the walk because yeah, that's yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. supposed to get hot um, it, yeah, it can it can be a problem. I certainly I certainly run into that problem. I you know I think having a flat bottom helps there, especially because you can you know you can move it around, you can slide it around the stovetop more. Whereas you know with a round bottom, generally most burners have like a it'll it'll settle into a place that's naturally in the middle of the burner, and it's difficult to keep it stable by moving it around and um, getting it in there. But yeah, you you know the. Those problems are mainly issues when you're doing specific types of stir fries, right? The kinds, the kinds where you particularly want to like capture a lot of wokhe and get that kind of that specific kind of stir fry flavor. For a lot of like you know home style dishes or simpler dishes or, or dishes from you know that aren't from like southern China where where you don't need these gigantic flames um, or non restaurant style dishes, it, it doesn't pose as much of an issue, you know, because you don't. Um, you know, as long as you're cooking in batches and as long as you're not letting everything just sit there and steam in its steam itself, um, it's not. 
it's it's you can work around it. But you know, but because of that, in some cases, you know, you find that um, an electric or an, an electric or an induction cooktop actually works sometimes better. You know, if, if the ring is even the right if if the ring is not the right shape on a gas cooktop and it really spreads out the flame wide, um, an induction or, or um, uh, resistive coil is always going to have the heat right in the center down there. So that can sometimes work better. But if you know if you're really serious and you really want to get this like restaurant style cooking, you, you know, you're gonna you're gonna invest in like an outdoor burner. You're, you're gonna need the space. But yeah, they're pretty sick. Those real outdoor burners are, are pretty sick. They're pretty nice. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, they're yeah, fun yeah. if you have the outdoor space. Yeah. And if you live in New York, you can just go buy the real thing. You don't need to go on the internet and buy. Oh yeah, just, yeah. Just go to Chinatown, pick up the burner. Yeah, the real cheap. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, and so <laughs> um, let's. But well, before we get into the, that, let's get into that. Said, I do want to clarify yeah. that like ninety five percent of the stuff in this book is doesn't matter what kind of cooktop you have. Like it's designed for home use. You, like you shouldn't fall into this trap, which I often see, especially on the internet, of people saying, oh, "I can't cook in a wok because I don't have a restaurant range." Right? That's that's right. clearly not true. But I think I think it is helpful to say honestly, like you know, try the flat bottom. Oh yeah, you know sure. what I mean. Try the flat bottom. Yeah. If you're having bad results on your stove, try the flat bottom. Yeah. Um, another thing. So uh, I don't know if you, whether you keep track of this, but in New York, uh, there's a proposal to uh, limit or to basically stop having gas being put into new right. residential stuff. Right. In Northern California, same thing when I was living there. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, a couple of people who you know I <clears throat> interact with on the Twitter are huge into uh, Chinese cooking, mm-hmm. and they're like basically said, "Look, that's it's racist." So like. You know, it's racist because you, their position is that induction sucks mm-hmm. for wok cooking. Mm-hmm. Sucks, in their opinion. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now, I've used, and I had this argument with them. I was like, I've used the five kilowatt. Now, so just so you guys know, in case you don't, the average uh, a high-power in, induction burner that you plug into a regular wall socket maxes out at about 1,700 watts. Okay? Right, which is the equivalent of around, I think, 6,000 BTU. If, it, like if your gas was actually efficient, right. it's, it's mm-hmm. as good as a 20K burner right. about. It's about this. It's about equivalent to the power out of a 20K burner. And, you know, and a fo- if, if, it, there's a lot of efficiency things, but they're pretty damn good. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, the real ones, the ones that um, the cheap induction units, like the thin, cheap ones, they throttle down as soon as they get warm. Right. That's the reason to buy the expensive induction <clears throat> burner is that it keeps putting out its power forever without throttling down mm-hmm. like the the cheap ones throttle down without even telling you so you wouldn't even know right right you can hear it but, yeah. yeah yeah so then uh anyway but if you've ever used like a five kilowatt like wok burner where the actual induction unit is shaped mm-hmm. like the wok right. mm-hmm. they are ridiculous <laughs> they are ridiculous they're so you, get, you need special wiring for those right? yeah, yeah 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 but i mean if that's what you want to do mm-hmm. and you have electric and then he was like, no, they're no good. I was like, listen, man, I don't know whether he's actually used these super wok burners because they'll cherry it. They'll cherry a wok yeah. in like what I mean is so uh, induction people can't heat uh, metal past what's called the curie point. As soon as um, as soon as the iron heats up to the cherry red point, it loses its uh, uh, hysteresis loss winds on the induction stuff. And so it, it self-limits. Right. But it, when it's glowing, you know what I mean? So right. it's like, but it would hotter cher- than you need. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so much hotter than you. It would cherry up that walk like that. Yeah. And I was like, no one needs this much power. It's crazy. It's crazy amount of power. <laughs> I mean, on my, you know, on my trip here, um, you know, I'm traveling around doing some live demos and stuff. Um, and I'm packing, I, I pack a, a case with a, an induction, uh, an induction walk burner. So, so it is, you know, rounded to fit the bottom of the walk. Um, and it was like, Five hundred bucks on uh, on Webstaurant, but it know, goes but into a regular socket. Yeah, eighteen hundred watts, and it's perfectly perfectly fine to cook on. Well, it's gonna do 
it's going to do any recipe as well as any normal home stove would. Yes. And so if yeah. your aim with your book is typically to allow people at home to do, you've never focused on the crazy. You focused right. on things that people can do at Practical. home. Practical. Yeah. 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 Um, it does, you know, it, 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 it works differently, right? So it's, it, it's cupped to shape the wok, but the induction element only heats up, you know, the bottom maybe what, I don't know what diameter is, 10 inches, 8 inches, something like that. So if you want to heat the sides up, you kind of got to like roll it around a little bit, but the same as you might want to do on like a gas flame. So, you know, so for things like when you're stir frying and you want to add like a sauce around the edges and you want it to immediately sizzle, um, you kind of have to heat up those sides. So you, you work with it a little bit differently than you would a powerful gas flame, but, um, but you can certainly get good results with it. And do you use uh, a Cantonese in that or do you use the uh, handle wok? I, I use a handle wok, yeah. I mean, I, I recommend a handle wok for pretty much anyone just because... Cantonese walks like yeah, Cantonese chefs use them, but I think for home home cooks, like having that handle um, is has a layer of safety to it. You know, because you know, as a, as a chef, if you're, if you're cooking in Cantonese or if you've ever worked in a restaurant, right? It's like it's an automatic towel, yeah. thing. You have a towel, and you're always yeah. touching things with towels. Whereas most home cooks, um, or at least a lot of home cooks, don't do that. So I, I always recommend a handled walk anyway. Yeah, I uh, I cook. I have Cantonese at home. Okay. I don't know why. That's because it's round. I think. Okay. Yeah. But maybe I'll go get a flat one. After reading yeah. your book, I was thinking, he's like, you know what? <laughs> you can get round flat, you can get round handled walks as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, I mean, but yeah, but I used to have one. I was uh -huh. like, crap on this because, like, when you touch it, because my ring is not big, I don't have a professional burner. Yeah. And so I always felt more stable with a Cantonese right. walk. Okay. Because I'd always been like, I'm going to use the round bottom because I'm shopping in Chinatown where right, I live right. and I'm going to buy, you know what I mean? It's so like, you know, yeah. like, uh, but maybe I'm after reading a book. I'm like, maybe I'll go get a flat one. What I mean, whatever is more comfortable. Maybe I'll get it with right? a handle, you know, I'll you start doing the tossy toss. <laughs> Speaking of the tossy toss, you do mention the old uh, modernist cuisine thing about the steam doing extra cooking on the toss. And I have to take some issue with that. Okay. I just don't believe it. <laughs> a lot of people talk about steam in cooking and I think by and large... It's hokum. I think because— okay. you mean, you, so, so you're talking about the idea that when you toss— So the, the thing that they said in Modern Cuisine, which I quoted in— I think I quoted it directly in my yeah. book, or I might have mm. referenced it anyway. Paraphrased that, it. Yeah, you yeah, referenced it, yeah. Is that um, when you toss—when you're, when you're cooking in a wok, there's this hot column of steam that's coming off the food, and when you toss your food through it, um, some of the steam recondenses on the food and gives it additional heat. Yeah, yeah. And then it falls back down and steams again, and so you're, you're kind of cooking it. Extra fast, like a, rec a reclaimed, reclaimed heat kind of a situation. Right. Okay. Right. So what's the I issue? I don't believe you think it because I just don't believe just that that's the case. Because as soon as the surface temperature of the food is a, is uh, above the temperature uh, of boiling water, then the, it's it's a wash. Steam only adds heat in when the thing is not actively uh, expelling. Water, right, right. right. But is the food, do you think the food, when you're tossing it in the, in the air, you think it's going fast enough that it's not cooling down and then you, you don't think there's a chance that it's cooling down when it comes out of the wok enough that the steam is going to reheat it again even a little bit? If it does, I think that at that point, first of all, people, anytime you see steam, that's not steam. Ste right. Steam, that's, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. water droplets. Yeah, so. that's water droplets. That means it's already condensed. It's already given up all of that massive amount of latent mm -hmm. uh, heat. So as soon as you see steam, it's over. You know what I mean? That's why, and I write this it, well in the book, in case I ever finish my book my, that I'm writing, <laughs> right? What I say is that the most dangerous is the steam you don't see because that's actual right. steam. Anyone who's ever opened, yeah, right. <laughs> Anyone that's ever opened a combi oven too quick, you know, some of the yeah, like, yeah. old ones that don't have locks uh -huh. and you put your hand in or anyone that's like immediately lifted off a steamer basket and tried yeah. to go in and it looks okay, toast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like <laughs> that's the steam that's going to get you. Yeah, because it's way hotter than the vapor you, you're, you're seeing. Oh, you know? yeah. Well, and it has all this latent heat right, energy right, right. in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So anyway, but 
Yeah, so I just never, I never believe, like, there's also people who believe that steaming things, and I know you know this is wrong, steaming things is faster than boiling them. Uh-uh. No, it's not. It's just not the case. I, I never understood the argument. Is, is that is that be, they're saying because the steam can get hotter than water? Is that the argument? It's all the or? latent heat. So mm-hmm. like so like when steam condenses, right, right, is why it takes so much energy to boil water. Right, yeah, when either you make steam back. or yeah. it condenses, it's a lot of energy. And so it's true that the most rapid transfer of heat energy mm-hmm. is steam condensing, condensing back on a water. cold surface. Mm-hmm. Right, but as soon as the surface is at the same temperature as the steam. All of that massive heat loss and gain is over. Is over. And yeah. then it's just, oh, what's a better heat transfer mechanism? Water. I mean, water. Water is denser, yeah. 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 Uh, so I've always hated that argument. Yeah. I mean, you know what? What I think is fair to say, and, and I mean, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, we, 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 we talked briefly about this, and, I, and, and that was one of those parts um, in the book where I was like, not 100% sure I should include this, but it's like, all right, modernist cuisine, that's a pretty good source. I can, you know, I can, they can back it up, um, you know, but, but, uh, you know, I, I believe more, no one. More, more data is yeah. needed. I believe nobody ever about anything. <laughs> we can never write anything because yeah, yeah, <laughs> everyone's yeah. wrong. Um, you know, but, but the thing that I think you can say for, for certain is that, you know, one of the reasons why you toss food um, and, and one of the reasons why a wok is so useful for stir frying as opposed to, you know, a, a saucier or a, or a skillet um, is that, you know, the wide shape and getting the food out into the air does encourage um, the evaporation of moisture from its surface. You're giving it for more sure. convection. You're giving, you're giving it more opportunity for that moisture to come off. Um, and that's, that's really what's important as far as getting the food to cook rapidly. Right. Kind of a natural uh, fluidized bed kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. I believe that. That I believe. All right. Uh, now, uh, another thing. Let's I'll, recall the book. Yeah, yeah I'll take. I'll take. Uh, I'll take a little bit of umbrage in your torch choices. You. Uh, okay. You like the Iwatani. Yeah. I will say this. Okay. So having done, a, I mean, obviously, you know that we do a lot of you torch like torches, work. Yeah. We do a lot of torch work here. Uh, the Iwatani. So you recommend? So the Iwatani is a butane torch. The mm-hmm. the the nice thing about um, butane torches is. Uh, you can get them anywhere, and they're cheap. They're relatively cheap. Yeah, yeah. they're relatively. I mean, cheap. the canisters are like a buck ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, you can get them anywhere. Yeah. Like in other words, when I say anywhere, I mean any country of the world. Mm-hmm. Like whereas, like our propane cylinders right. here, or you know, like uh, whatever map, um, you, you can't. Like they're, right. they're country by country. They're country specific, mm-hmm. right? You you can get um, uh, certain other gases, but they're they're not very good for torches at this point. Yeah, okay. I mean, they're also even within you know even within the U.S. they're they're harder to get. I think they're less less widely available than the than the butane cans. Right, and if you're going to get a, a portable gas burner for picnics, and by the way, you, the Iwatani that you recommend for the 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 picnic burner was what I call them. Yeah, I don't the fifteen k or the three horsepower, whatever the, the three 15, ZP or fifteen k. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. Right, and those take butane. And that, and that would be one of the recommendations for people who are who have induction who do want to work with gas um, is to get a yeah the Iwatani. There's a couple manufacturers that make 15k uh, yeah 15k BTU butane burners. I got the one burners. from the other manufacturer because it's half the price. Okay, yeah, sure. but, but like you know what I mean. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 15k. And by the way, people don't be fooled. There is a there is a seven. Thousand roughly BTU picnic burner. There is a twelve thousand roughly BTU picnic burner, and there is a um, fifteen. Mm-hmm. And most ninety nine point nine. You can't walk in in the street and buy one of the fifteens. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone is maxing out at the twelves, and a lot of them have the sevens. And <clears throat> it's not clear which one you're going to get, especially if you buy from like the less 
fancy brands like like the not Iwatani brands, you have to really look up and see what you're getting and don't listen to the salesperson. <laughs> they are the worst. I almost like I got in an argument. I walked into a store that claimed they had the fifteen thousand on uh-huh. their website. I walked in. I was like, "Yo, where's the 15? They're like, "This isn't the fifteen. They're like, "It's the same gas." I'm like, "I'm not asking what gas it takes. <laughs> I'm asking. I want the the one that with the right amount of power." And they're like, "Because I need it for the book. Because uh-huh. I'm doing tests. You know what I mean?" By the way, you can measure the BTU output of your of your stove just by uh, turning it on for a specific amount of time, weighing it before and after. You can see exactly how much gas it's consumed. Mm-hmm. You do the math, and then you can calculate the efficiency based on how much water you boil. If you want to know what my life's like, that's what my <laughs> life is like right now. Anyway, uh, so make sure you're getting the right one, and don't believe someone that they're all the same because they they're ain't. Not, yeah. They ain't. So, but back to <laughs> back to propane versus butane. Is that uh, it? so on the Iwatani pro, uh, butane torch? Mm-hmm. They're not a bad torch with this proviso. So I can't tolerate having something in my kitchen that requires two hands to turn on and turn off. And so the Iwatani, you have to turn on the gas, right? then click it on, and then you have to, if you're very good, if you have good dexterity, you can use like the, the where your thumb and your mm-hmm. hand come together and you can turn the gas off with one hand, Yeah, but it stays on. And I want my, tor- my kitchen torches to be either off or off. Or on. You mean the you mean the, the gas the, even after you let your finger off the trigger, the gas keeps coming out. Gas the trigger keeps all it does out. is it has the electric starter. Yeah, yeah, then, yeah, 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 yeah. And to me okay. that is like but where it is good is that it's a bushier flame. And so as opposed to the uh Burnsomatic torch, mm-hmm. and you say the four thousand, come on, man, if you're gonna get the 8, torch, 000. get the eight thousand. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> come on. Uh but uh, the bushier the flame, the less of the na- kind of nasty torch taste you'll, yeah. you'll create. Yeah. So you do want a bushier flame. Iwatani does have a bushier flame. And you also don't need that much power for what uh, you're doing with it. So, yeah. but And, and uh, uh, you know, we've been speaking to our torch manufacturers and asking them why had no one has built a – and I know why, but I don't have the time. It would right. take the rest of our time together to talk about <laughs> it. Uh, it's just stupidity. But why they don't make a uh, – a, a butane that just turns off when you let go of it. Right, right. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, for me, the recommendation for the the Iwatani, it's it's mainly about practicality, right? It's like if you wanna if you wanna learn if you, if you wanna go down a torch rabbit hole, like you can read your stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, or, uh, or, yeah. or talk to you, and and you'll go down a rabbit hole. And there's a lot of things to choose from. For me, like the Iwatani, it's like as far as like the combination of, of the ease of accessibility to the can- canisters and just being able to order like a 40 or 50 dollar thing off of Amazon or wherever like i think for most home cooks like that's the most practical approach to take and it's what i do at home like i don't i i got i have a you know i ha- i have a i think i think i have an 8000 at home and i'm pretty sure i do yeah. um but it you know it's in like a plastic case i don't leave it at, sitting out of my kitchen all the time oh, yeah, Whereas i always the, have it Iwatani, it's just like in my it fits in my cupboard easily i just pull it out when i need it and it takes a second and i just find it a lot i mean easier storage wise and you know shopping wise and, and all that stuff but I mean, I, but everybody's yeah. different obviously so. i always have my torch out and yeah. all of my burners are standing pilots and i always, the first thing i do when i get a standing pilot burner is i kill mm-hmm. the pilots uh-huh and then i just i mean i know i shouldn't <laughs> but I, I kill all the pilots and then I, I torch light them. Yeah, because I just I just don't need all that extra heat in my house all the time. Got it. I have I my uh, my stove my my house came with a broken stove um, and it doesn't have any ignition, so I have like a little uh, like a piezo. I hate those things. Clicker clicker thing. Oh, I love it. I hate them. Why? Uh, because they're all like they're all poorly made. So that uh, is it just a piezo unit? 
Uh, it's got it's got like a little gooseneck. Yeah, yeah, I hate them because <laughs> and a uh, this is the this is the part of the design that's terrible. Is that if you look at it, it has the same technology as like piezo lighters, uh-huh. and so unlike a piezo lighter in a torch that's buried. Uh-huh. With, so the gas comes out yeah. and it's lit actually away from the surface. Right, right, right. If you use your, if you use that clicker in a dirty environment, uh-huh. the end where the piezo is gets oxidized, right, and right. then it doesn't freaking light anymore. And the, then you're like, yeah. click, 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 <laughs> click, 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 click. You know what I mean? And it's like clicking a thousand times. Maybe, yeah. Whereas I've, if they just buried the dang piezo in the gooseneck, yeah. You wouldn't have that issue. You wouldn't have that issue. I suppose, yeah. But I, but the but the way but be, the way it's set up, I can use it to like. Um, I can also use it to like light kindling in the fireplace, and I because it's exposed. I right, can use right. It to like light but the it, uh, the edge of like a you know a fire log. It's, if people wanted to be a little bit better with their lives in yeah. terms of design, if it yeah. was not <laughs> virtually impossible to innovate with factory production, yeah. right? You could build one that would last. Forever. Yeah. They wouldn't get gunked up and have to be thrown away after after six months. And I get like virulently angry when things aren't working at the moment when I need them to work. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> uh, like I just I just hate it so so much. Um, okay. Now let's talk about seasoning because a lot of people okay. have questions on on seasoning. The and you're walk. talking about like seasoning the walk. We're not talking about MSG yet, right? We're going to talk about <laughs> okay. MSG. We have time. Uh, so like first of all, like you mentioned all the materials. Does anyone actually make an aluminum wok? I've never seen an aluminum wok. Uh, I've seen aluminum woks, yeah. So my old friend, um, Chi Chi Wang, who was a writer at uh, Series Seats for a while, she actually owned a, an, an aluminum wok um, that she was a very strong advocate for. And back back in the day, like maybe this was 20, 10 or 12 years ago when we were talking about this, but um, she was a very strong advocate of aluminum woks. Um, and I and I cooked on hers a bunch. It's I don't, they're like not, they're certainly not common. Walk? No, no, um, it, it was, um, I mean, hers was like super well, it was, it was dark, it was well, you know, it was, it was dark and, uh, you know, seasoned. Um, I don't know how it came, but I'm assuming it came looking like a, but it was like, you know, it's like naked. A Nordic it oh yeah, yeah, it was naked. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like uh, one of these, like not clad, not. No, 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 no. It's like, you know, like a restaurant pan. You know, like so how a, light was it? Was it, was pr- it pretty thick? light? It was yeah. like, it was maybe, I would say close to a centimeter thick. So it was, it was pretty thick. Um, right. Relatively light, though. Yeah, huh. it's light. I mean, about the same weight as a as a carbon steel wok was. But it was it was lighter. aluminum colored on the outside, but seasoned color on the inside. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't actually know how, harder don't know how she to treated it. Well, yeah. this is, brings us to our other interesting question. There are two schools of thought. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, day, way day, back when you were you know writing at Serious Eats, and I was at the French Culinary Institute, mm-hmm. and the modernist folks hadn't yet come out with the mm-hmm. book, right? Right. There was all these discussions about how seasoning actually. Let's just say, li- listen, get 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 carbon <laughs> get a carbon steel wok, right? Get right. a carbon steel wok. That's the answer, right? That is the answer. That's yeah. the answer. That's the easy answer. Yeah, I mean, the short answer. And there's no reason not to. Yeah. There's no reason to get a different thing. Yeah, unless you already have it, and you Fine, know, or whatever. unless somebody gave you a two hundred dollar all clad wok for your wedding registry or whatever. It's, it's yeah. not going to do better than a, a carbon steel wok is going to do better. All clad makes a, a clad wok. Yeah. Why? You don't want a shiny so walk. Sell it? If your walk, if your walk is shiny, you're doing it wrong, yeah, right? I agree. Yes. If your walk is shiny, <laughs> you're missing you're, out on flavor. You're making your life harder than it needs to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're just doing it wrong. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> in my opinion, and you know, you wrote the book here on walk, so you tell me. I'm, I don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> I definitely would not recommend buying a shiny clad stainless steel walk. I would not recommend it. Yeah. yeah don't do that. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
Yeah, just get the steel. The steel is so. But now, is there a huge difference between you think spun versus hammered versus stamped? Uh, you know, I I've, I have both. So I'm traveling right now with a with a hammered walk, um, or or at least it maybe it's spun and then has had hammer marks added to it. Because um, from what I what I know, there's very few people actually still making really traditionally fully hammered walks. But um, but I have one that has you know has a hammered finish. Um, and the, but the one I use at home is spun. Um, I haven't noticed a huge a huge difference. You know, the main the main difference is that um, when you buy a hammered walk, um, at least in my experience. They're pretty much always going to be relatively heavy gauge, whereas spun walks, they get them down. They You can buy a cheap spun walk that's like, you know, that's like 18 gauge, like a millimeter thick, really, really thin and is going to be kind of flimsy and flex a little bit, which I, which you won't get with a hand hammered walk. But as far as like performance goes, I haven't noticed much of a difference at all. And on the thinness, like uh, you're actually an advocate for relatively thin because you want the hot spot. You actually don't want yeah, the heat exactly. traveling you that don't, much. You want you want it, so you want like you want your pan to be reactive, right? You want to be able to turn down the heat and for the pan to lose its heat. You want to be able to turn it up and for it to get up pretty pretty fast. And you do want there to be you know unlike a Western skillet where you're looking for um, you're frequently looking for very even heating, right? And you're looking for retention of heat and and so that so that when you add food to it, it stays at relatively similar temperatures. Whereas in a wok, it's like you're doing a lot more fast cooking and on the fly adjustment of things. Um, and so, yeah, so I recommend um, 14 to 16 gauge is generally so like one and a half to two millimeters or so. Um, I think the one I the one I've been I've, I've been using for the last 20 years is like I, I, I measured it's like 1.7 millimeters, something like that. 16. I've been measuring so many pans. It sucks. I hate doing it. Um, <laughs> 16 gauge for those of you that uh, care about this is the only gauge that is roughly similar to its uh, fractional dimension. It's about a sixteenth of an inch. All right. Roughly. There you go. Uh, old metal worker guy, me. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't want to become a metal worker if you're not already a metal worker, but, you know, <laughs> not for a living anyway. You don't want to cough out all of that uh, soot at the end of every day. Uh, all right, listen, Kenji, we're going to go to a commercial break, and then we're going to come back and talk about MSG. All right. Sounds good. All right. Good. <laughs> we're back with cooking issues. This episode of Cooking Issues brought to you by Aura King Salmon, our favorite fish. Today we have Michael Fabro from Aura King to tell us more about it. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here and really excited to talk about Aura King Salmon, uh, which we raised down in New Zealand. It's a super premium salmon that's available to professional chefs and home chefs alike. So coming from a zero-waste perspective, Michael, I see that you're now using the fins for dog treats. That's right. Yeah, this is part of a, a real goal we established a couple of years ago about full utilization of the animal. You know, in New Zealand, we cut uh, fillets, we cut portions, we, we do smoking. So you have a lot of trim. So we wanted to find a good home for that trim. So we developed the uh, line of pet treats. We also do uh, oil as well. And we sell these under our uh, brand called Omega Plus. Uh, Aura King Salmon. Follow them on Instagram at Aura King Salmon. Everybody's favorite fish. And we're back. Uh... Okay, so listen. Yes. We're going to have the MSG argument, but maybe we should get some questions down because people <laughs> people want to ask you questions. Let's get to it. All right? Is All right. it questions about MSG? Uh, no. And we actually we didn't really actually talk about seasoning. The big difference in seasoning was oh, right, right. Uh, there was the argument is, is it the special iron oxide, the black iron right. oxide, magnetite, or magnus, whatever it is, the, you know, the, the special black iron oxide, is that what's really uh-huh. – causing the seasoning, or is it oil polymerization? Right. And most Western writers have come very hard down on... Polymerization. Yeah. And, you know, and in fact, as you point out in your book, if you look at, like, skillets, right, uh, you know, you build up those layers by layers by layers by layers, whereas typical wok seasoning 
you maybe you do it like once or twice and it does build up a seasoning but you're not like layer layer not, layer yeah, thinner. Exactly. yeah 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 and and it's because you know with wok with wok cooking you have you have all these big temp- temperature differentials so your metal's expanding and contracting at different rates and so you it's hard to build up those layers in the first place and they flake off more easily and then you're also going to be very frequently deglazing with you know, with sauces and with acidic things all the time. So with a lot of wok dishes, like when you're done cooking with them, even if you have, you know, I have a 20 year old wok, but even when you're done with them, like very frequently, you'll see a little bit of like sort of dull silver metal at the bottom. So there's like, there's no real layers of. Especially when you overheat them. Yeah. Yeah. There's no special, there's not really much sort of, none of the layers of like thick seasoning that you find on a well, like an old cast iron pan. Right. Um, but what, what's your, uh, what's your take on it? What's, well, where do you come so in? what's interesting is, is there's a lot of recent uh, work out of China, mm-hmm. some of which has been translated into English for, uh, you know, international journals that is focusing on, I mean, and I don't know how much of it is BS because most science writing is BS. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, for real. Uh, but like uh, iron oxide nanoparticles are the black stuff, mm-hmm. right? And like, th- like that's the magic of the wok. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? For them in terms of seasoning. What do I think? I think it's somewhere in between, right? right. So like, you know, when you are seasoning, uh, I mean, it is true that carbon steel seems to blacken up in a way when you season it properly. Right. In a way that, for instance, we were talking about aluminum before. Aluminum right. doesn't. doesn't. Aluminum will get brown. Mm-hmm. Won't get black. If uh, you, yeah, it only gets black if you leave the oil, like a if you do the oil, the like polymerization right. over and over. Right. Right. And even so, it looks different. It does. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so what do I think? I think it's somewhere in between. So like in the Chinese writing, I don't think they have a lot of experience with Western pans, frankly, because mm-hmm. of what the way they write about Western cooking. I don't think they have that much experience with Western mm-hmm. pans. And so I think they poo-poo our stuff in the way that our scientists poo-poo mm-hmm. their stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I think, I think it would be interesting to actually get like two groups of people yeah. together. And because I think both are at play. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I can say for sure that at least from a practical standpoint, um, when you cook something in a carbon steel wok side by side with a stainless wok, um, the flavor is no like you could I've done blind tests on this and there's a noticeable difference in flavor, um, which I assume comes comes from some interaction with the metal or with the seasoning. But um, right. I mean, so like you want like your seasoning, you want it to be. Uh, hydrophobic, but mm-hmm. you want it to be lipophilic, right? Because you want mm-hmm. oil to sm- slick out on mm-hmm. it and provide and, good right, contact. Exactly. But you, but what's what, you know what the most recent? I should have printed it. I, I didn't. I was too stupid. But um, they've got about the, the kitchen gods gift is what they. I believe if you want to search for it, people. Uh, but they're like, well, what's interesting about wok seasoning is, is that it is actually sticky in certain regimes, which is useful, mm-hmm. right? Like when you're like pulling a, it up, up the on the sides. side, mm-hmm. yeah. Certain temperature regimes and uh, and nonstick when you need it to be. Mm-hmm. But again, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, and I think the research hasn't really been done yet. We need to bring those two groups of scientists together uh-huh. and you know <laughs> have some sort of seasoning conference. But nobody cares about this because there's no money behind it. Right. <laughs> All food science is driven by money. Right. Well, well. Hopefully, I'll, I'll drive walk sales, and people will care about that. People will care about it. All right. Uh, let's get to some questions, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll do our MSG. We'll do our MSG SmackDown towards the end. It won't be okay. SmackDown, but you know, I mean, if you hear like we'll things get getting it. flipped over, like you know, all right. Uh, all right. From Patrick Ciccone, uh how should a walk on an induction burner be preheated and seasoned? So we dealt right. with this a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I'm typically using a wide, flat-bottomed walk on a portable induction burner, the Ducks Top uh, 1800. Mm-hmm. It allows you to choose between constant output and constant temperature control. Mm-hmm. I ha- remember, Patrick, as I said earlier, don't tr- get a kilowatt meter. They're 12 bucks. I swear to God. Hmm. Go on, uh, or 14 bucks. 
don't, you know, whatever, the evil empire Amazon, go on, get a kilowatt meter and plug your induction burner. Make sure you get one that'll do 1800 watts, though. You don't want to blow it out. You don't want to blow it out. Yeah. Uh, plug it in and monitor your induction burner as you're using it and see what it actually is doing. Mm-hmm. And I just, re- I told you, I just returned uh, one that I bought because I was like. It was regulating without you wanting it to. And without telling me. Yeah. It wasn't like, <laughs> I'm too hot. I'm too hot. It didn't say that. Mm-hmm. It was just like, yeah, I'm putting out 1,700 watts. I'm putting out 1,100 watts. Big difference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, Patrick. Back to your question. Uh, I haven't figured out a particularly good way to preheat and not also burn the existing seasoning off. Uh, you should use a lower, uh, lower power setting and let it heat up longer and then crank the power when you're cooking is what you should do on that. Anyway, or is it better to I, just I, start a high temp in this case without much preheating? Yeah, so I, I well, I, I would have the opposite advice. So first of all, I wouldn't worry about burning the seasoning off your wok because, again, like I don't care about the at least the layers of seasoning that are going to burn off the polymerized stuff. That's fl- like I, I don't have that on my woks most of the time. Like I, um, it, for me, like you know, wok seasoning is more of a, a, a per use basis as opposed to like a Western skillet where you're where you're trying to build up this thing and, and make sure that it doesn't come off. Um, I would you know I always recommend preheating it as hot as you can till it's smoking hot. Don't worry about what's going on with the seasoning there. Then lower it, add your oil, swirl it around, and start cooking. And then, you know, then if a recipe calls for the highest heat, leave it on the highest heat. But you really want to get your you want to get your oil in, and then your food in as rapidly as possible after you put the oil in, because the the danger is that your your pan is so hot, you put the oil in there, and you're going to start creating these flavors that you don't. It's going to start smoking, and you get these flavors you don't want in there. So you need to get the oil in, slick it around, and then put your food in. Um, and you know, if you do it that way, you can you can cook an omelet in a wok, and it's a brand new wok, and it's not gonna it's not gonna stick. You don't need the heavy layers of seasoning on it. Can, can, um, can I tell you? Something? Yeah. So, uh, back in the era when when aluminum cooking was aluminum cookware was uh, the the preeminent cookware in mm-hmm. the United States. Uh, so we're talking just pre World War II. Everyone was using straight aluminum, unseasoned, mm-hmm. right? And the trick is is they took everything up above the Leidenfrost point. Mm-hmm. And so if, if it's above the Leidenfrost point. Right then, your food can't stick to it. Right, literally, your food cannot yeah. stick to it. So it floats, and then as it's floating, there's enough heat in the float to lightly set the the the, the surface l- so that, surface yeah. stuff. So that then, when it does settle down and it get the super, stick. it doesn't stick. Exactly. I mean, but that's also you know that's also what you know the layer of oil. If you're if you're one of the reasons why you put oil in a right. skillet is so well, that yeah. as you're putting food down in it. it it starts to set before it comes in contact with the actual metal. Yeah. Right, right. But I mean, you can't do that on a flat riddle because it just, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So anyway, so but, but my point being that like you can achieve nonstick results in surprising ways if you're willing to take the heat up high enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's typically how you do cook in a wok. And like most, if you, you know, watch videos of most people, chefs cooking in woks, they, you preheat it really hot till it's smoking. Then you add your oil, swirl it, and then you adjust your temperature to, to whatever you want it to be, whatever the recipe calls for. With a Western pan, though, Patrick, I'll still stand by what I yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. Because an induction burner can wicked overheat. If on full power, an induction burner will heat a ring because induction burners are nine times out of ten ring-shaped. Right. And you'll burn a ring into the center, uh, in, you know, around your, your, your skillet. And even on, like, on the fancy ones, like the polyscience, uh-huh. the, the, the freak, it, it, it measures temperature in the center. Right. And by the time the center of your cast iron pan, because they're so slow, gets up to temperature, you've hardcore messed yeah. that ring. So I preheat on a slower setting up to the temperature I want 
then jack it when I put the food in. Can I ask you your opinion on something? Because um, and uh, this is a reader question for you from me. Um, so you know, so first of all, I want to ask you like when you when you cook on a when you're when you're sautéing or searing or whatever, do you do you pay attention to the surface temperature of the pan before you put the food in? Is that something you do in real life? Yeah. In the real life, I mean, it depends on. I, I, I've been doing a lot of cooking on weird old pans for right. the book, but like in general, I'll in general I always have a little water and I always right. just go. Okay, so the, the more practical flat. method. Yeah, um, I, I don't. You know, cause, cause I, people... Thermometers don't work on pans, so like I've done a lot of tests, uh, except for on carbon steel pans, they work great. Yeah, because they're black. Because they're black. Yeah. Uh, but I have done a lot of tests where I look at them, uh, where uh, I've done a lot of tests where I take. Uh, Carbon black, and I carbon black my pans, mm-hmm. and then I look at them with infrared cameras to yeah. try to see exactly yeah, yeah. after I've completely blacked them out yep. uh, and looked at them and kind of looked at how the surface behaves and, um, you know, w- with uses and stuff. So I have looked at it, w- like what, but in general, when you're cooking, um, when I'm actually cooking, no, right? So, like, right. My, my job when I'm trying to write this book is to try to figure out how all of this data that I'm collecting actually helps someone else be a better cook, you know? Right. <laughs> actually, this photo I did, by, I use spray-proof, like, matte black, uh, yeah, heat-proof yeah. Matte, matte black paint to get the, yeah, yeah. To get the IR photo. But, um, so my, my, well, my question Carbon is black this. is so harder people, because it, you need a lot of it for it to be infrared uh, opaque, uh-huh. but it does wipe off your pan as opposed to the... Oh, okay, yeah, these I had to ditch. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, So people ask me, like, oh, I'm making, I'm making, I'm searing a steak, like, what temperature should my pan be at? And my answer is always like, well... I mean, temperature is like a material specific thing in the first place, you know, so it's like a, like a, a thin aluminum pan at 500 degrees is going to be holding a different amount, a different amount of heat uh, energy than a thick cast iron pan at 500 degrees. And it and, transmits it differently. And it transmits it differently. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, so to me, people, if people, if someone is asking you like, what temperature should my pan be for a specific use? Generally, like that's, that's not the question. That's, that's not what you're really looking for. What you're right. looking for is like the rate of heat transfer right. and the amount of energy which that the pan can store, which a is a different number from temperature. Exactly. Right. And, and it's much harder to measure at home as well. It's but, impossible. So the thing is, is that I think like, and that's really what I'm working on in the book. And my wife is like, you're going to sell exactly 12 of these because like <laughs> what I want people to understand, one of the main things I need people to understand is that temperature isn't what does anything. It, right. I mean, I mean, there are certain Tem- things that are temperature is useful if you're talking about like water and everybody, you know, everybody's water is, is water. Everybody's yeah, yeah. air is air, right. but a pan is not a pan. It's right. like, it's like actual heat transfer. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And the same, like, so I've, I've been like measuring what's actually you know, going on with uh, in different heat surfaces. I have these weird anomalous things that are happening in my oven that I can't figure out. And like it's, and again, the, 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 for me, the challenge is figuring out how that actually makes you a, a better cook. I think people kind of focus on this stuff too much. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I think in terms of what you're saying, I think it's important, like cold oil into a pan because you're going to break the oil down too much. If you heat your pan up to where you want to heat it up and you, the oil is already in there, good night. You know right. what I mean? Like right. the oil is going to start smelling like de- like dead fish right. and rancid oil and broken. It's going to smoke and food's not going to be good. So yeah, cold oil, hot pan, boom. Right. You know what I mean? And you know, pretty much most home burners can't get you hot enough to be dangerous in any reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about it. Right? Um, I think the light and frost effect is a good thing if you were interested in that. And so like I've been doing a lot of tests on that at home, mm-hmm. like searing burgers without grease. Mm-hmm. On a on on a you know greaseless burner, where I've light and frosted it out, you know, so that, what that means, people, is the, the the balls run around like, right. and, and they don't don't boil. They when run you, when around. you sprinkle water on it, it the the water is evaporating, and and the force of that evaporation is holding the water above the surface of the pan, so that the heat transfer is actually so. There's a point at which 
when you pour some water into a pan, it'll actually evaporate slower than at a slightly lower temperature because it's not in contact with the pan anymore. Correct. So that's what we're talking about. Uh, but on the other hand, right, like my old school method that I always used to do, which is I cook the bacon in the pan, pull the bacon out, rip the, rip the grease until it's like just starting to turn blue above it and then put the burgers in that. Is it better the other way? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's not. Uh, because talk about surface area, deep frying, uh-huh. deep frying people. And you're basically deep frying at that point. Like, cause there's a layer of grease that like lips up around the bottom. Yeah. Of the thing, you know what I mean? And the pan's already well, the hot. Thing, so the it's thing like, that deep frying doesn't get you the pan, you know, that saw, that searing in a skillet or grilling can get you. Is that with, with grilling and searing, you can you can get hotter than the temperature of the oil, right? You can singe certain bits and you can get some kind of blackening. Ish. Whereas a deep frying, deep frying, yeah. you just get if you want to go black. Browning. If you want to go yeah. black, I, I sometimes like going black. I often like going black. If you like going black, but like if you like for browning, I mean, because the, the truth is, right? And have I done that measurement yet? Look, there's a there, people. There's a big difference. There, there's a I, I, we don't have time to get into. It. I have questions to get <laughs> all right, to. All right, but all right. like, the, 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 there's 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 a bunch of different numbers you can look at when you're looking at how heat transfer works, and one of those numbers has to do with what is the temperature going to be right between two things that are quote unquote touching each other, but aren't mm-hmm. right. And so that where the actual heat is going on the meat is a very interesting place. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, let's get to some questions uh, from, uh, what do you think, Ivan or Yvonne? What do you think? Ivan I'll go with Yvonne. Yvonne, all right. Uh, hey, uh, Dave, Kenji, and the rest of the crew, for over 10 years, I've used a trusty, well-seasoned wok that fits the recommendation in Kenji's book for everything except gauge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say that mine is about one mil- millimeter thick rather than two, and you were mm-hmm. talking about this, which is why I didn't go into it at the time. I knew I had the question. Okay, got it. I'm going to pretend that I remembered that, which I did not. Uh, <laughs> how much of a difference does this really make? Should I buy a thicker one? Which uses and techniques would benefit from uh, such a change, and by how much? Thanks a lot. So, yeah, when you're talking about the, the thickness of your wok, one versus two millimeters, I mean, there's two things that matter. So, well, so first of all, the most important thing is that if you've had this wok for 10 years and it's well-seasoned and you're happy using it, then there's no reason to change, right? If you're happy with something, keep it. Well, what are they uh, going to get? From yeah, that? so there's two things, right? So one of them, is, is, of course, is just sturdiness, right? So I find that at one millimeter, if you take your wok and you kind of push it around, it flexes pretty easily, you know? So it, to me, it just feels like it's, it's not as easy to get control because it's flexing as you're cooking with it, um, especially when, it's, when it has a significant amount of food in it. Um, so one of them is a, is a control issue. And then the other one is a, is a heat retention issue, right? And so you, there's, there's a bit of a trade-off there, you know, and it depends what kinds of things you tend to cook in it a lot. So, um, you know, a, a thicker, the thicker the material is, so a wok that's twice as thick is going to hold twice as much heat energy at the same temperature, right? So if you preheat it and let it come to the point where the oil inside is smoking, um, the one that's twice as thick is going to have about twice as much energy in it. Um, and so that means that you're going to be able to put more food in it without uh, having a rapid, rapid temperature drop. Um, on the other hand, it's going to be less reactive. So when you make an adjustment in your flame, um, it's going to take longer for that adjustment to reach uh, the food. I would say in general with a, with a wok, um, you know, I, I find the sweet spot to be around one and a half to two millimeters where you get a good amount of reactivity, but you also have enough heat that you can cook like you know a half pound of something at a time without it completely um, using up all the energy. Whereas if you go smaller to like a millimeter, you're just going to have to cook in more batches. And that's, you know, that, it, it's just going to be cooking a little bit longer but it, you know, but if you have a ten, if you have a one milliliter wok that you're, and you're happy with the weight and you're happy with how it handles, then there's not really any reason to change it other than just you know adjust the recipe, not the tool. I'd say. All right, Ivan. See what I'm saying? If if you like it, keep it. But maybe it flexes too much. Yeah. Sure. By the way, <laughs> uh, I got to finish these questions, and we got to do MSG. But but <laughs> I want some of you, some of you are going to need to sit down if you're listening on headphones right now. First of all, Kenji doesn't rinse his rice. <laughs> Kenji doesn't. 
Rinses rice. Only because I'm lazy. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Do you rinse your rice? Uh, yeah, of course. Always. Not. Yeah. All rice, all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All I right. mean, it's just habit. You put the rice in the rice cooker bowl. <laughs> you put a, a boat ton of cold water. You swirl your hand around. You do the the, the dump, and that's it. You know what I mean? Like, I, my, I don't think my grand. I ever saw my grandmother washing the rice. Maybe she did. I don't know. I, hmm. I, definitely I mean, they have rinse-free no. rice, but I don't buy that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I buy I buy mainly I buy mainly Calrose okay because my son likes it yeah. anyway. Uh, the other thing uh, on rice is that for a weights man, mm-hmm. you do your rice by volume. Did I do I do I not have uh, both in here? Uh, uh, your big things by like, volume. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, maybe maybe in the, there's like a chart in there that has that has yeah. volume. You know, again, this is one of those things where it's like. You know, you have to know your audience, and it's, it's a question of practicality versus precision. And most of the times, like I weigh down, I come down on the side of practicality for that. You know, and I, I when I'm when I'm making rice, I don't I don't pull out a measuring cup, I don't pull out a scale, I pull out whatever cup I have handy. So if like I have a water glass in my hand, that's what I'm using to measure my rice and my water. I always have a we have a couple of rices, and they're in like big bulk things, right? And I just keep my rice scoop in the bulk rice. Oh, fair, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean. Uh, and so I, uh, even though I hate it, yeah, I use the, I also go by volume, uh, it, and, uh, I <laughs> the use truth the, comes out, yeah, huh? <laughs> I use the, the Zojirushi yeah. rice, you know, cup I have, you know, I have yeah, 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 uh, which is a dumb measurement. And I, it, it, the person who said that's a cup needs, needs, needs <laughs> to get a special place in hell because it's not any relationship to a cup. To a, you a, mean to the actual measure of a cup. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. people say, oh, one cup of rice. You're like, and then how many American cooks have been ruined by thinking that the cup was a cup? Now, I mean, I just think of it in ratios, right? So what, like when I store my rice, I buy in bulk also and I keep it in containers. And the only thing that I have in the containers, um, you know, like I have a label maker, I put the, the type of the rice and then I put the ratio of, I do like one to 1.1 or one to 1.5, depending on the rice. I'll say what the va- the ratio of rice to water is. And that, that way, like anytime I scoop out of it, whatever vessel I have, um, I just eyeball it. So I, I'll take a cup, I'll scoop out the rice, I'll pour it in, and then I'll go to the sink, fill it up once, and then a tenth and pour it in. And that's how I, that's how I do my rice. I noticed in your kanji that you use uh, broth, but you don't add additional salt. You're not that kind of a heathen, are you? To add additional salt to you know, there's kanji? a whole argument. Yeah, don't salt oh. your kanji. Don't <laughs> I don't salt so rice in general. I, I don't salt my rice that I'm serving at the table. You know, so my, my wife and I both come from rice eating cultures, right? She's Colombian. I'm, uh, I'm my mom's Japanese. Um, uh, so in Japanese and Chinese traditions, you typically don't salt the rice because the food is very highly seasoned. It's meant as like a right. kind of bland. And you hate thing people that, you that do salt the rice. At least I'm I don't told. hate anyone. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> um, but uh, whereas, in, whereas in Colombia, um, the rice is always salted, and I think in a lot of American traditions, this, the rice is going to be salted. Um, so we we um, we battle about that. But but it's really contextual, right? If we're making Colombian food, we salt the rice. If we're making Japanese food, we don't. I like that you're flexible. <laughs> uh, all right, um, from Kevin McHugh. Uh, digging into the wok, and it's as, it, it is as impressive as expected. Uh, I've been uh, cooking Andy Ricker's uh, pad thai recipe for a few years now, and I find it regularly removes the seasoning from my wok right at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I'm left with a dull gray surface uh, that food sticks to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean— We talked about this, yeah. Right, a little bit. But uh, what we didn't talk about is— I mean, when I use—let me finish the question first. Uh, other dishes I cook in the wok don't have this problem. I assume it's the tamarind. Right. Is there anything I can do to avoid losing the seasoning? I'm usually frying on a gas burner with peanut oil, avocado, or bacon fat. Thank you. I, I mean, like, I typically 
So you tell me what you think. I typically, after I use my wok, when I rinse it, I'll spray a little bit of oil and just heat it to dry it, and that yeah. fixes it. Yeah, generally what I do is, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll rinse it. I'll scrub it if I need to. I have, like, a bamboo scrub brush that I use. Um, I'll scrub it if I need to, use soap if I need to, and then I put it back on a burner, turn on the burner until it dries out, and then rub some oil in it. Um, I rub it, rub oil in and then take a, let, it, let it smoke a little, then take a clean towel and rub it out as if... As if I had accidentally put it in there. Um, you don't. You don't have to worry about that. You know that happens. Yeah, it's probably it's probably the combination of the the you know the tamarind and the amount of liquid that's going in there. You know that that happens with other dishes too. Like I cook like you know if you braise like chicken adobo or you do like res, red braised pork belly something like that um, in your wok, it's going to come away some of the seasoning. It's going to leave that that dull silver color. But you know if you go out into like the, the streets of Bangkok and see someone cooking pad thai, they're cooking in aluminum or cast or, or carbon steel, um, and very often you're going to see those woks have the same thing. They they lose their seasoning with each cook but that's you know that again i think the the issue comes from from thinking of that of the use of the word seasoning and and thinking of it in terms of like how one would season a cast iron pan but you don't have to worry about it it's going to happen um okay so from ezra probably one of the most common questions you'll get but i'll ask anyway i need a walk what should i be looking for when i pick one up and we've hit some of this right i'm assuming carbon steel Large size, but what else? I prefer not to shop on Amazon. So if I go to my local restaurant uh, supply store or Chinese market, what should I look for and how much should I pay? Carbon steel, at least one and a half, you know, 14 to 16 gauge, so one and a half to two millimeters about. Um, carbon steel, I would recommend 14 inches with a flat bottom and a long handle. Um, you know, the, 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 the long handle is really a matter of personal choice, but I would recommend a long handle. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Those that's really the only criteria you need. Um, and I don't think you should pay more than if, if you're at a local shop, you'd probably be paying like looking at like forty bucks, maybe, maybe that much nowadays. Maybe less, but yeah. What about in Chinatown? They're not that much. I, I, th- I think the one at like the walk shop in San Francisco's Chinatown is forty bucks, something like that. Um, if you want to order it online, you can find the same prices. Um, or you know, you can buy it from some modern American manufacturer of carbon steel things and pay 99 bucks if you want. And you ever, uh, you ever mess around with actually having a, like a reel with the, with the water surround? The real, real no, <laughs> oh I've, 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 you know, I've had the chance to like go into restaurants where they do that. Um, so and, uh, if you've ever seen, you know, uh, you, you know, Wang Gong from, uh, from you, from the YouTube, he's uh-huh. a, he's a, he's a Sichuan chef who has a very popular and very good YouTube channel. It's all in Chinese, but most of it's dubbed. Um, uh, uh, has subtitles, but he he um, he has a really great video about how he's about a new kitchen he's setting up, and he talks about um, the the water pouring down um, the surface under the walk and how important that is for well for all the cooking. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a cool video. You should check it out. It's sick. Uh, someday, someday. Uh, from Jason Gray, I heard you bring up induction. Uh, we went full induction for our new kitchen based on statements over the years. Let me see. Oh wait, I don't think this is a question for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> He has this sick. Uh, have you seen it or used it? Like the the Thermador, like wide induction that like figures out where the pan is. It's got like fifty six different. Oh right, 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 right. Uh, I have, where have I? Seen? I think I've demoed one somewhere. I can't remember, but yeah, I know the one you're talking about. Those are pretty cool. Yeah, I've never sure. used it. Yeah. I, Electrolux <laughs> tried to make one years ago, but it wasn't good. Yeah, but I hear the Thermador one's good. You can actually move it, and it figures out where. Yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, and then it has a little touchscreen display that shows how many where where things are, yeah. so you can click on it and. Say I mean, whatever, I prefer. But. Non-electronic in, like interfaces to my cooking. Oh gear. yeah, like 100%. I want things that I want things that twist and click. Yeah, 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 yeah man. <laughs> even if, even if like under the hood, it's all electronic. Give me my tactile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> business. Um, all right. See if these others are for you, or whether we can get into. Oh, Dale Harris wrote a time sensitive. Oh, maybe you do know this. I don't know. Uh, would be great to have an answer for this week because he's arriving in the United States now. People, if you hear this, uh, go on our Patreon or go on my Twitter and give answers to Dale Harris. Coming to Boston and New York City for a few days with my closest friend, 
who's hitting 40, both love bars, but he can't drink alcohol. Where should we go that has amazing non-alcoholic beverage programs right now? I don't know. I feel like this is a you question. I don't know, but like we, I felt <laughs> well, we I don't had know a really the last good time program. I went to a bar. Yeah, I don't. I guess I went to one last night, but uh, did but they have a good non-alcoholic program? Not, I've, uh, they had an okay everything program. Yeah, all, right, all right. Well, if, if that's all you say, then we won't, uh, we won't uh, do it. Oh, here one from Jared, uh, from Jared Johnson. The other one was from Dale Harris, by the way. I don't know whether I said it right. Uh, Jared Johnson writes in, any issues, uh, Kenji, with substituting between ghee, olive uh, oil, avocado, coconut, or macadamia? Macadamia is so expensive. Why would you? Like, it's so expensive. <laughs> uh, would it would be also be good if you guys could discuss a minimum investment for a wok burner? Well, you say you can do it on almost anything. But yeah. If, if, so I th- when he says a minimum investment for a wok burner, I'm, I'm assuming he's talking about if you want to be able to do like certain restaurant-style dishes that have a lot of the, you know, the wok hay. Um, which are which is not by no means every every in every dish. You don't need that in every dish. But a wok like that, a wok burner like that. I mean, if you live near Chinatown, you can pick one of those. You can pick the burner itself up for like twenty five bucks, and then you just need a place to install it. If you need like an all in one thing, um, probably you're looking at probably around one hundred fifty to two hundred bucks. You're going to find uh, like really bare bones ones, um, and then you know they go up from there. If you want a professional installation or whatever, you're going to build an outdoor kitchen. It goes up from there. But the, but the burner itself is probably 25 50 bucks yeah. um, at most. But it's a lot uh, to put it in. But the ones that you yeah. buy that are outdoor on Amazon are still only like, you know, 80 or 100 bucks or something like that. It uh, depends on – I think the – so I did, a, I did a review on Series Eats. You can find it um, of a bunch of different models. And I think the, uh, there, there is a in, relatively inexpensive there, – so there's one called the, uh, the Big Kahuna – yeah, it's okay, and I think right? it's like 160. It's okay, bucks. right? It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That works. That works. It works fine. It's like 65,000 BTU, I think. And then there's um, the, the other one I recommended was called the Power Flamer, which is made by um, a guy out of his garage in in Northern California who who told me he could definitely handle volume and then couldn't. So I don't know how long it'll take to get one of those, but um, but those are yeah. He makes he buys basically you know uh, stock parts and 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 puts them together, um, and it's just a really inexpensive. Uh, like metal tripod with a with a burner on it, and those yeah those those get up to like a, you can buy like one hundred sixty five thousand BTU models of those, which is more than you need. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember in in uh, in the book because I heard you say to someone else that uh, the mapo tofu is the thing closest to your heart. Do you do the Japanese one or the do you do the well, Chinese in my book? One there's both? two. There's there, there's both recipes in the book, but the the Japanese one is the one I grew up with. So that that's the recipe that is closest to my heart. Yeah, yeah, I love mapo tofu. It's delicious. Yeah. I love both. Uh, Okay, uh, one last thing before I get, we have two minutes and 30 seconds, but I will say this, it's so funny, like both of us had an experience, I guess, because you actually write it down of like our first kind of street, Jen Bing thing, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, on, on the streets in China, and you're like, holy crap, why isn't this all over America? Yeah. So this is like they, a crepe, <laughs> so they make a crepe, but then they wipe an egg into the top of the crepe, crepe right. and then flip it and do all the toppings, and what's hilarious to me is that you and I were both like, this needs to be a thing, yeah. Which it's not, strangely. Yeah. A couple of people have tried. But you came and did the exact opposite of thing I did. So you came and used, you did a tor- like a tortilla to make right. life easier so you don't have yeah. to have a crepe maker and all that stuff, right? And I came and I did the crepe with the egg but put Mexican fillings into it. Oh, okay. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it was good. <laughs> but like... But I was like, I was like, I can't even talk about this. That's a double appropriation. Like I'm stealing like a, a Chinese street food recipe and then putting like Mexican stuff into it. It's a no, it's a no can do. Yeah. Well, uh, that's where having a name like Kenji Lopez helps, right? Yeah. You can do it. You can do whatever you want. Uh, it's just me that can't. Anyway. So let's talk MSG. So in your book, uh, I'll just say this. Uh-huh. I'll say what we agree on. Okay. If someone doesn't want to eat something, don't serve it to them. And yes. don't make people feel bad about what they don't want to eat ever for any reason. Yes. If somebody doesn't want to eat something... Don't give it to them. 
Yeah. But okay. we are going <laughs> we'll to disagree yeah. uh, specifically with what you said in the book uh, where you said that that MSG, don't worry, we still have some time while, we're, while the music's playing. Okay. Uh, the MSG, it's a scientific fact that... Um, that people have reactions to it, I'm going to disagree with this. Okay, and 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 I think you know, I think I know where your disagreement is going to be, which is that the the study that I that I cited in the book, the 2000 it, study, yeah, yeah um, that uh, it wasn't actually blind because people can taste MSG through the orange drink. Is that your is that your they, equivalent with no, that? Yeah, well, first they can taste MSG through the orange drink right. because people. Let me tell you, it was two. It was uh, five grams, five grams of MSG in a 200 milliliter beverage. Yeah. Okay. For people that were self-selected already, as you know, of people who think they're sensitive to MSG. Right. And the people who wrote this study, this 2000 study, didn't redo a triangle test on the citrus beverage with the people in their current study. Mm -hmm. They relied on a triangle test from 1979. Mm -hmm. That triangle test was not run in triplicate. And so what they didn't do in the 1979 study was see whether or not the seven people who could tell... Mm -hmm accurately Mm -hmm. whether they could repeatably tell accurately so to me the entire idea that this citrus beverage can mask msg has not been shown sure that's yeah and i and i think that's a totally fair uh a totally fair um uh disagreement um you know, so so for me, the 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 issue that I take on the other side, you know, and so I, you know, I've heard you often cite the study where people were given um, pills, and this is the one where where people, which frequently pe- people frequently cite, the one where people are give people are given pills, placebos and non placebos, um, and that uh, people who have MSG re- reported MSG sensitivity don't get any reaction. So my quibble there is that. It's very possible that the the reactions you might get from something like MSG are something that require local, you know, local absorption in your mouth, right? Because a lot of the a lot of the sort of like the whatever there, there, there's many things that could be going on, and my the whole idea that um, we know for sure one way or the other. Can we both agree that we don't know for sure one way or I the other? I don't know. I think the overwhelming <laughs> propon- I, there. It, let me put it this way: in the world where we have like our current era's fake facts. Like, I don't want to give equal weight. I don't see any scientific evidence that there is an effect. Well, there's so. <laughs> so I think I think what this largely comes down to is we place different weights on on observation, you know, on the on the on the reliability of a preponderance of anecdotal observable evidence versus versus controlled lab study. And I think there's right now there's very little controlled lab studies. Well, there right? I mean, there's a lot. There's none that like there's no way to figure out if I paint your mouth with MSG somehow knock you out so you don't know what's happened. Right. So that's I mean, the difficulty. But right. but right. I think the odds that like because it's absorbable everywhere, the odds that the like oral route in your mouth is going to cause every reaction. I just don't see it. And I find further problems with this 2000 study, which we only have the time because we're about to get pulled off that like to get into in terms of they didn't even follow the recipe right from 1979. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right, right. Like the citrate that was added was added in the wrong way here as opposed to in the 1979. Right. So like I just think it's a bad study. I think it's bad science by bad people. I don't know that they're bad people. They might be good people. So it's bad right. science. So is it fair to say that we both agree that there should be more studies? I would like to see the study that proves that this like kind of like tiny window that you give for there to yeah. actually still be an issue is wrong. Yeah. Which I believe there is no evidence to show. <laughs> there is no evidence in the way that like there there is no evidence that taking the vaccine is going to make you sterile. Like, I don't need to see that much more evidence that vaccine doesn't I make think you it's sterile. Diff- I think it's pretty different from that. But, All right. Um, we can agree that. We can agree that you shouldn't tell people what, what you shouldn't tell people to eat something they don't want to eat. Uh, we can and agree we can on agree this. that MSG is delicious. It is delicious. All right. Thank you, Kenji. <laughs> Kenji Lopez, all cooking issues.